Hi, this is Pastor Wilson. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, Renew Church OC, where we pre- present different sermon series that I hope will enrich your life. The next six weeks, we'll be going through our series, Unstuck, where we go through six stages of spiritual development and how we can progress from one stage to another while appreciating each stage that we're in. I hope it helps you on your spiritual journey as you get a landscape of where God is taking you now and where he's taking you in the years to come. God bless. Okay, everyone. Um, So I want to ask you a question this morning. Was there ever a time in your life where you experienced hitting a wall? When you were unable to move forward in your life? When you couldn't continue to make any progress? Where you felt exhausted and depleted and worn out? When you felt depressed and discouraged and totally burnt out? Have you ever been at that place? And many of you were able to share some of your experiences. Well, this morning, we want to talk about the wall. So you might ask, well, what is that? Well, in the book, The Critical Journey, and that's kind of what we've been looking at, the different stages of our faith, uh, we see an overall definition of the wall. Can we put that up? The wall represents our will meeting with God's will face to face. We decide anew whether we are willing to surrender and let God direct our lives. We have spent our own energy, we have come to the end of our ropes, and we are ready to learn to let God be God and to let God direct our lives. Well, to put it in other words, as Christians, the wall is a stage in the life of faith where we're learning to completely trust God through the confusing and perplexing and exhausting trials that we can face in our lives. Because you, as well as I know, that not all trials are created equal. There are some problems that attack you in waves. Isn't that true? There are some issues that last for many seasons. There are tribulations that come completely unexpected. One day you're fine, the next day this happens. And so it's easy to handle a one-and-done 30-minute sitcom type of trial. But sometimes there are fires that aren't easily put out. And that's what the wall represents. So this morning, we want to talk about the wall. And it represents those trials that completely zap you of all of your faith and energy and where you need to depend deeper on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at a person who hit a wall in the Bible. His name is the prophet Elijah. We're going to learn some valuable truths that will help us in our lives. So if you have your devices, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, We'll have it up here, but there are some passages that we won't have up here. And so it'd be uh, very, very good for you to have that uh, in your devices. 1 Kings chapter 19. So the first point we want to look at is what causes a wall? What causes a wall? And the answer is trials in its many forms, right? Trials can be trouble or tribulation or hardship, affliction, adversity, calamity, misfortune, suffering, silence, problems, persecution, isolation, complications. All of those are trials that are a catalyst to hitting a brick wall in your life. So we're going to look at the catalyst that was in Elijah's life. And so let's look in verse 1. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel 
everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, if uh, you don't know this story, let me just share in context uh, and give you some background. Many of you have probably heard uh, this story, read this story. Uh, you guys know this story, but let me kind of give you uh, a background of Elijah. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah confronts King Ahab of Israel and his pagan wife, Queen Jezebel, for bringing the worship of pagan deities into the kingdom of Israel. So Ahab and Jezebel allows 850 prophets of uh, these deities, these pagan deities, uh, 450 prophets of Baal, that god, and 400 prophets of Ashura, uh, the goddess. And so they were allowed to propagate this Canaan religion all throughout Israel to teach and to guide the Israelites to practice ritual child sacrifices, to perform perverse sexual practices out in the open as a worship to these gods and goddesses. So Elijah, because of this, pronounces God's judgment on Israel, that there will be no dew or no rain on the land. And so for three and a half years, a devastating drought ravages the land because Israel has turned away from the Lord their God. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah issues a challenge to these 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And uh, here's the, the challenge, that they should construct two altars with two different sacrifices, one for Elijah's God and the other for their deities. And the challenge was whoever answers by burning up the sacrifice was the one true God. So this showdown went all throughout Israel, and it happened on Mount Carmel, and all of Israel attended to see what was going to happen. The evil prophets started first, and so they prayed all day to Baal to send fire, but nothing happens. And then when it was Elijah's turn, Elijah said, let's make it harder. Take as much water as you can and douse the sacrifice. Make the whole thing waterlogged. Make it as hard for me as possible. And so when he... It was his turn. He prays a very short prayer, and fire falls down. Isn't that cool? Sound effects. Fire falls down from heaven, and not only burns up the sacrifice, but disintegrates the wood, the stones. It even uh, disintegrates the water, if you can imagine, uh, from the sacrifice. And when the Israelites saw that, they all shouted in unison, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And immediately they repent of their idolatry. And so they take those 850 evil prophets who had propagated pagan worship, who had encouraged child sacrifice and perverse sexual sins, and who led them astray in worshiping false gods, and they killed them. And so when Israel turned back to the Lord, Elijah prayed because he knew the promise that if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if my people who are called by my name will pray and humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so now revival is happening. Beginning of revival was occurring and Elijah impacted that. And he prays and rain comes back and heals the land again. Now is our text in 1 Kings 19. Ahab tells Jezebel just what happened on Mount Carmel. She wasn't there. He talks about the showdown, the defeat of uh, the, the, the prophets and the death of these evil prophets. But you know what? They were her prophets. 
Actually, the 450 prophets of Baal were the ones that she cared and nurtured for. They ate every day at her table in the capital at Jezreel. And so when she found out what happened, she was furious. And so in verse 2, let's look at it. It says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So here we see that Jezebel pulls a John Wick, one, two, three, and four, by putting a hit out on the prophet Elijah. A 24-hour contract. Elijah is now excommunicado, right? Those of you that know, thank you, thank you. You're amening an ungodly movie. I can't believe that. Anyway, this is the catalyst that causes the wall. Now, some commentaries and Bible teachers uh, said that Jezebel is sending an empty threat. There's no real power to what she's doing. But if you understand ancient history and you understand history in the context, she is the queen. She has absolute power. So she does have the power to do this. We see later in verse 10 and 14 that Elijah has witnessed the execution of many of the fellow prophets. And so he says, in reality... He is the last prophet standing, and now they want to kill him. So Elijah definitely believes that the contract hit is legit, right? He believes that. So here's my question for you. What happens when you've done everything asked of you? You faithfully followed the Lord's direction. You've obediently performed the Lord's instruction. You've selflessly served the Lord in ministry. You've worked so hard for three and a half years under emergency drought conditions, preparing for revival, and now revival is just, just beginning, and then suddenly you're hit with a death threat. What do you do? Well, you do what we talked about. You hit a wall. So my second point, if you're taking notes, is what are the signs of the wall? We're going to study some symptom signs, and we're going to diagnose the issue that Elijah had. And so there are six warning signs that you've hit a wall, okay? Six warning signs. The first one, and they're all F, okay? I do that all the time. They're all F, okay? Number one, fear creeps into my life. Fear creeps into my life. In verse three, you'll have to look at your devices now. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. The Bible says that Elijah was so scared that he ran as far away as he could. He even abandons his servant, his companion and confidant, to travel alone. Now, isn't it true that when a fiery trial enters into our lives, our instinct is to run and escape? And we run as far away from where God has called us to that we can. We may forsake community. We may forsake accountability. We may even forsake our church. Because fear can cause us to run away from what's important. Number two, foolish decisions are made. Verse four, he himself went a day's journey in the desert, and he came to a broom tree and sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. Here, Elijah is acting impulsively. He travels a full day into the desert without food, water, and provisions. That's crazy. He is so anxious that he's not thinking straight. And when we hit a wall, we tend to act impulsively. We make foolish choices that aren't thought through. And here's the crazy thing. And this is how we think when we hit a wall. And this is the the foolishness that comes, that maybe death will bring the relief that he wants. You know, that's the craziest decision of all, is suicide. When we believe that 
killing ourselves or death will bring about the relief that we want. You see, foolish decisions are made. Number three, fruitlessness curses my work. Fruitlessness curses my work. Verse four, I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah exclaims that he wants to quit, to give up, because what he has done so far is pointless. It doesn't amount to anything. And I want you to notice he compares himself to his prophetic ancestors. He exclaims that his life is fruitless compared to them. You see, when we hit a wall, we tend to be hypercritical of ourselves, hypercritical of our work, especially as we compare ourselves to other people. You know, there have been so many times I need to face, uh, excuse me, fast from Facebook, okay? Uh, I don't know if you're like me. I don't have Instagram. I'm not, you know, I'm not good with these things, but Facebook I have. Sometimes when I look at, you know, those posts from my friends, it doesn't fill me with joy, although I always like it, right? It fills me sometimes with envy. It, it makes me mad. And, and if it's somebody I don't like, right, and then they're doing well, what does that do, right? It doesn't produce anything good. But that's what happens when you hit a wall. You feel fruitless. Number four, fatigue exhausts my limits. Verse five, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah sleeps and sleeps under this broom tree, and then he sleeps and sleeps some more. Now, think about this. I don't know if you've thought about this before. Imagine how exhausted Elijah must have been. He's been ministering nonstop as God's prophet for three and a half years during the drought. He finally sees the beginning of revival, everything he has worked for, only to have it potentially ripped away because of this death threat. Imagine the cumulative effect of fatigue. He's emotionally, physically, and spiritually exhausted. And that is why when we hit a wall, it can have a cumulative effect. It can zap not only all of our energy, but it can deplete all of our reserves as well. Let's see another one. The fifth F, feelings of failure abound. Verse 10, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Imagine this statement, and imagine what he's saying. Elijah tells God he has worked hard, but nothing has changed. Israel is still a mess, and he views himself a failure. Now, let me ask you this question. Is this really true? No, it's not. Revival is just beginning. Israel has turned to God. They've turned away from uh, the wickedness and idolatry and the practices of evil. Now they are ready to follow God. Elijah has been successful in influencing revival. But that is what happens when we hit a wall. We become pessimistic. We tend to exaggerate the problem and to make worse what really is. The wall tempts us to maximize the bad and minimize the good. We overestimate the enemy, and we underestimate God's power and plan. Let's look at the last one, number six, feelings of resentment fester. Now, in verse 14, if you didn't notice, he says the exact same thing that he listed in verse 10. He replied, I'm very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. The exact same thing. Anytime a person complains repeatedly about the same thing multiple times, you know that there's lingering resentment, right? And that's what's happening to Elijah. He says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Do you know Elijah's resentment causes him to distort reality? 
In verse 18, you know how God responds to Elijah later? He says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. The reality is, Elijah, you're not the only one left. But you know, when we go through a wall, we feel like we're the only one. Let me ask you this. Have you ever exhibited or are you now exhibiting these signs in your life? Well, if you are, let's look at the last point, and that is the solution to the wall. The solution to the wall. How can we find comfort and solace, encouragement and healing? Do you remember the definition that we gave in the beginning? The wall is where God's will meets face-to-face with our will. The wall is where we decide to surrender to God's direction, even when it's confusing and perplexing and even exhausting. The wall is where we can learn to trust the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. So how does Elijah get to that place? How does God respond to him? So we're going to look, first of all, we're going to look at three things. Firstly, we're going to look that the Lord gives us rest. The Lord gives us rest. Amen? Can I get an amen? Verse 5, let's look at it. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. I want you to see that God's first solution to Elijah's burnout was eating and sleeping. Sleeping and food. Doesn't that sound great? God doesn't scold him. You know, when I think about it, Elijah is out of God's will. Elijah has ran from uh, what God has called him to, but God doesn't scold him. Rather, he gives him plenty of rest. You see, the most spiritual thing that we can do sometimes is eat and sleep and eat and sleep and eat and sleep. Can I get an amen? Amen. You see, God knows that the first thing we need when we hit a wall is rest and relaxation and recuperation. By the way, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, can we put it up? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, if you're burned out, worn out, or stressed out, Jesus says, take his yoke. You might say, well, what's that? Well, did you know that the yoke was a metaphor for every rabbi that referred to their system, their philosophy, and their teaching? Rabbis used yoke as a metaphor for their system. So that when a disciple put on a rabbi's yoke, he was buying into their system. And so here Jesus offers any person who has hit a wall, his system, his rabbinic system, which is the gospel. And it's this idea that you can find rest. You can see that he's gentle and humble in heart. You see, the good news of the gospel is not legalistic. It's not full of rules and regulations to crush somebody who buys into it. What Jesus is saying that the, that the gospel offers you rest and recuperation because you come just as you are, amen? And you come to him, and he's the one that is able to heal and sustain you. It doesn't depend on you. It's all about what Jesus has done. It depends on him, amen? And that's what we have to understand. The Lord gives us rest. Number two, the Lord listens to us. I love this, verse 9. There Elijah went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. 
what are you doing here, Elijah? If you're a parent of a teenager, especially a girl teenager, you know exactly what Abba Father is doing, right? You know what God is doing. Uh, you know, my daughter is a senior, and uh, she's actually going to be going to college. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually sad because, you know, I won't be able to see her every day, right? But I remember when she was in junior high, uh, she would share her problems with me. And in junior high, I was a bad dad, okay? Because when she would share her problems with me, I would immediately give her advice. I would give her information. I would give her truth from the Bible. I would exhort her. Because I'm a pastor, that's what I do. When you meet with me, that's what I do. I do that on a daily basis, right? And so I'm doing that to her. And I just share the right scripture and I share all these things because I love her, I care about her. And so I start doing this and I noticed that when I did this, she stopped responding to me, right? Her eyes would roll, her tongue would go in her cheek, you know? She would just sigh and she would clam up, right? And so I realized, oh my gosh, these amazing things I'm sharing with her, she's not responding to. She's not taking. And so you know what I learned to do? I learned to go a different route. And that's, that's when I became a good dad, right? Now I ask her, what you doing, Alexis? And she starts sharing with me, and I listen with a poker face. I do. I listen without any response in my face, right? right? I, I picture Jonathan this way, right? Where it's just cool as a cucumber, Right? Where not, now, when she's sharing, I'm going crazy. I'm like, oh, I got to give her a scripture, right? Or, oh, man, I know exactly what to do, but, but I don't show it, right? And she's sharing. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. Oh, yeah, you can tell me. You don't have to tell me, whatever. But inside, I'm going crazy, right? Because what I've learned is she needs a place to vent, she needs a, a place, a safe place where I'll listen. And the, the way that I, as a father, can love her is to listen to her. Amen? That's, that's a tip for you that have babies, okay? When they grow up, do exactly what I do, okay? <laughs> Listen, God knows the answer to this question that he's giving. He already knows what Elijah's doing. But what the Lord wants to do is to get Elijah to share his frustrations, to get it off his chest, to spill his guts. And in verse 10, he spills his guts, frustration and fear and anger and worry and loneliness, and resentment, it all just comes cascading out, and the Lord allows him to vent because he cares about him. And that's the same thing that he wants you to do when you hit a wall. He wants you to unload your feelings to him. And then the third thing, the Lord communes with us. I love this. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went outside and stood at the mouth of the cave. I want you to hear, I want you to know that here Elijah meets face-to-face with God. But you know, this is really interesting. God tells Elijah that he is going to show himself. He's going to meet him face-to-face. And a tornado comes through, the, uh, the, comes through strong enough to break boulders. An earthquake comes and shakes the ground. A wildfire appears with awesome fury. You know, some commentators, as I was studying this, and Bible teachers, say that God was putting a show on for Elijah. 
that Elijah was doubting God, so God wanted to demonstrate his power without saying a word. So the reason for this was to teach him not to be scared of Jezebel, but rather have the fear of God, right? The fear of God, right? That was the idea. And that might be true to, in a peripheral sense, I believe, but that's not the point of the passage, is it? Because the Bible is clear to say he was not in the tornado. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the wildfire. But God was in the gentle whisper. That was when Elijah came out, put his cloak over his face to meet with God face to face. Now, you might ask, what does this mean? What is the point of all of this? If the point wasn't what you just shared, commentator said, what is the point of all this? I remember uh, Pastor Wilson, I promised him that if I were to teach on the wall, that I would share a very you know, authentic uh, story, right? And he does it all the time. I don't do it as much, but here it goes. I'll share with you because I promised, okay? I've never shared this uh, in, a, in a large group before, but I hope it's of help to you. I started a church the, uh, around the same time that Renew launched. And uh, after the second year of our church uh, existing, we were running about 45 people. And it was mostly uh, college students and young adults. And it was really difficult. My closest friend, ministry friend, right, pastor friend, proposed a plan to me. He said, hey, why don't you join my established church and assimilate your people with my people Help me grow this church, and together we will launch with families, because you only have college students and young adults. We'll relaunch with families from our combined community. And I thought, what an amazing offer. You know, and I shared it with our people, and they were excited, and we all agreed. We agreed because he showed me an official PowerPoint presentation with charts and graphs. I mean, it was so official, right? What could go wrong? A year after... I remember he called me out for coffee. We usually went out for coffee anyway, so I didn't think anything of it. But we went out for, uh, he called me out for coffee. We were sitting uh, by, uh, in the mall uh, by, um, um, what's that, the Nordstrom's uh, coffee shop, right? Just right there. Uh, he called me out for coffee, and to make a long story short, he said he wasn't going to honor our plan. And I remember thinking, my best friend in ministry reneged on everything that we talked about. And so, you know, I, I tried to scramble and think of, okay, how about this or how about this? And I remember him just smiling at me and saying, we can't do that. And I remember that day I hit a wall, right? I went through all the six warning signs. It was the hardest struggle or one of the hardest struggles I ever faced. And you know, all that time that I was going through this, I was looking for a grand, supernatural, miraculous event to restore me back again. I was looking for a tornado of repentance where my pastor friend would come weeping with sackcloth and ashes, where he would say, I'm sorry how I treated you. I was so wrong, right? He would take me to Mastro's, and we would eat together, and he'd say, hey, everything's back on. We're going to do it, right? That's what I, pray, what I pray for, what I thought, a tornado of repentance. Or if not that, an earthquake of opportunity. That maybe a big church would invite me to be their lead pastor. And everything would, be would, would come out happily ever after. And my self-esteem would be you know, restored again. Or maybe a wildfire of rejuvenation. Where the Holy Spirit would revive me with his supernatural power. So that I would be ten times more excited and more inclined to start a church plant over. And to see great miracles occur. But did you know? God didn't do any of those things. He wasn't in any of that. 
a tornado of repentance, an earthquake of opportunity, a wildfire of rejuvenation. God wasn't in any of those things. Do you know what God was in? He was in a gentle whisper. When I was struggling with the wall, I spent six months in therapy, regularly meeting with a therapist who, by God's grace, was a psychologist and also a pastor, a Southern Baptist uh, pastor. And you know, together we met for six months and I would share everything and he would have me do prayer exercises. I read a lot of Pete Scazzaro on being a healthy pastor. I spent a deep time, six months, wrestling with God about all that had happened and about my life. And can I share with you? God communed with me in that gentle whisper. I had to lean in to listen to him as he communicated healing in my life. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when somebody whispers, you got to lean in, right? I had a uh, a friend, one of my best friends uh, in our friend group, who actually was a very soft-spoken guy, right? So it was hard to hear him. And he was very, very uh, introverted, uh, wisest of our group, right? He didn't talk much, but when he did, it was always kind of soft-spoken, you know, kind of thing. And when he would talk, I had to lean in because I wanted to hear what he had to say, right? And I got so used to leaning in to listen to him that after a while, he could be far away, and and I know exactly what he's saying because my ears got accustomed to hearing the whisper of my friend. That's exactly what God does. God speaks to us, and as we lean in, we start to realize truth and what he wants to do. That is communion. Can I get an amen? We see Elijah meeting God face to face. We see him deciding anew to surrender to God's will, to let God direct his life. He spent all his energy, he spent, he came to the end of his rope, but now he's ready to learn, to let God be God, and to let God direct his life. There's so much more in this passage that I can't share for sake of time, but let me just share this. When we look at Elijah chapter 18, he is bold, isn't he? He's confident. He, he, he stares down those 850 prophets, false prophets. In chapter 19, he looks the opposite. He's running away. He's scared to death, right? But then if we look in chapter 21, after this incident, he's right back to being even more confident in the Lord and in the power of his might. He ends up trusting God so much that he goes to Ahab and Jezebel and he says, God is going to pronounce judgment on you. And he's not afraid of the hit that's put out before him. That's the power of the wall. Nobody wants to go through the wall. But the wall is what God allows nonetheless because in the end, he knows that we're going to be stronger because of it. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would do its amazing work, its surgical skill and work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and we love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished 
um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.